0: Please pray with me. Lord, we come to you this day grateful that we have it in one another as we walk through your word this Lenten season. I pray, Lord, that you would transform us by the renewing of our minds as we hear your word afresh this morning. And we pray that that would be the reality for each and every one of us. That you would take our minds and think through them. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our wills and bend them to yours. And take each and every one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been in a series in the Psalms throughout this Lenten season. We've talked about confession. We've talked about spiritual dryness. We've talked about, last week, getting our rest in the Lord together. And today, we come to this great great text is Psalm 98, finding that it's a song of praise to the Lord. And you could certainly approach it like that. You know, Psalms 96, 97, 98 are often prayed together. You'll find that in our daily office. But the reality is there's more to it than just a song of praise. So I invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to Psalm 98. If you do not have a Bible with you, you'll find it. We just prayed it uh, there in your bulletin. I encourage you to follow along with me because it's, it's a fascinating adventure we've been on here. I've never preached on the Psalms before. It's been incredibly challenging for your minister. I, 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 I thank you for your mercy to me. Um, but this is just, it's been fun. Uh, it, it's interesting when you say that Lent is a fun season, right? It, it, that's what it is. It's, it's a season of joyful repentance. Well, what makes it this way today? Well, I think you're going to see it because it's interesting because Psalm 98 throws you a curveball. You get to the very end, and what does it say? Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And if you look at Psalms 96 and 97, they're very much like this. Psalm 97 says, for the Lord will come. And we'll be glad when he does so, for he's exalted above all gods. And he will come to judge the wicked. Well, you know, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, it's as if he's saying, God will come and judge us. Yay! <laughs> How does that work? Well, let's look at it, okay? What we're going to discover in Psalm 98 is a promise, a problem, and a joyful reality. Okay? A promise, a problem, and a joyful reality. Let's look first at the promise that the Lord gives us. Um, it's a psalm. You don't have to do it in, in order, okay? It's not necessarily designed in, in Hebrew to be viewed that way. So, and plus, it's, 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 it's my sermon, and I get to do what I want to with it, all right? So verses 4 through 9 is the promise that we have here, all right? Verse 4 through 9, great text. We read those together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the king, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Uh, That's just an amazing song of praise. Not only the instrumentation of the ancient world, but all of creation. As the seas roar and the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing themselves. When the Lord comes, the King comes. You say, well, that's, that's metaphorical, and that's true. It is, but it's more than that. It seems to be pointing to a greater reality than just the trees clapping their hands and the seas, and the seas roaring. For what we're being told here is when the true king comes, all wrongs will be right. It seems to be pointing to the reality that All the created things will explode to their true potential when the true king returns. Don't you find your spirit soaring when you hear that? You do. You know, because you love these types of stories. My kids, one of my kids' favorite Disney movies when they were little was Robin Hood. You know, when the fox was Robin Hood. It's great. Lady Cluck. Is Maid Marion's, you know, and she catches the football and runs past the rhinos to on Wisconsin. You remember that. (laughs) It's the best scene in the movie. That's how my kids learned. That's why my kids learned on Wisconsin through Lady Cluck. (laughs) What's the theme of that story? King Richard is away, fighting the good fight. But there's an evil Prince John taking advantage of the people. And the sheriff of Nottingham is doing his bidding. But there's one man who says, enough's enough. We're waiting for King Richard to return, and until he does, we're gonna take care of it. And so it's a great story of Robin Hood and King Richard and, 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 and the best return of the king story of them all. I, I ask your forgiveness. <laughs> Lord of the Rings! <laughs> okay? It's, it's the best. The whole Ring Trilogy is based around the possibility that one day the true king will reside in Gondor. And all of Middle-earth is awaiting that event. Tolkien wrote that great essay on fairy stories. Read it. And his whole uh, theory there is to say, we all long for such happily ever after stories. We love them. And all fairy stories... Tolkien writes points to this great story. That we're all created in the image of God. That we all have a knowledge of God that according to Paul in Romans 2 we all suppress. And that in each and every human being on the face of the planet is a story that we all want to live under this king. The king where we will flourish. The king that we will just reach our full potential along with all of creation. We'll sing. In the Two Towers, it's one of the most sad, sad parts of the whole trilogy. Where my favorite king, King Theoden of Rohan, has been had an evil spell cast over him. And Saruman, who cast it over him, has a minion named Grima Wormtongue. Isn't that a great name? <laughs> it fits him. He's just sleazebagged can't trust a word that he says, and he whispers in the king's ear as his reality is clouded. He forgets who he is until Gandalf comes. And Gandalf casts and removes the spell, and I think uh, Peter Jackson brilliantly cast it as the cloud went away from his eyes, and he went from this ashen gray to skin-toned. To the regal King Théoden. My friends, in Christ, that's us. When he realizes where he is, and he looks at Gandalf and he says, where have I been? And all the people of Rohan rejoice because their king has come back where they can flourish and be everything that they were meant to be. Oh, my friends, when the promise is that one day the true king will return, we can bank on it. That's the way it will be for each and every one of us. That's the promise. Now, 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 what's the problem? Well, verse 9. Before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and his peoples with equity. You see, when judges come back, they judge. When kings return, they judge. They hold the people accountable for how they treated one another, how they took care of the king's possessions, the land, the treasury, etc. And anything or anyone that has done wrong, it must be made right. And there's the problem. How do we rejoice at that? That's the problem. And it's not just a problem in the Bible. It's also in our lives. You know, today's prominent worldview is postmodernism. And Tim Keller was preaching on this about a couple years ago. talks about, there's a British novelist named Edward Dox who wrote two years ago that postmodernism is dead, that the era of postmodernism has died. Now, if you don't remember what postmodernism is, it's the idea of Deprivileging of any one meaning. The idea that all discourses are equally valid. In other words, no one has the truth. There are no absolute standards or right moral standards. And Dox points out because of the rise of postmodernism, it has helped Western society in some ways address some social injustices. That is true. But he said, yes. why is it over? Because a new problem was created. Because if you deprivilege all positions, there can be no positions at all. And he's coming from a leftist position, by the way. All positions become indistinguishable, which leads to anarchy, chaos. Because you can't say anything is unjust. And the postmodernists will no longer do what is needed for the world for it to do that they have created themselves. If you go back to one standard, war will break out. If you don't, you have anarchy. He hates Judgment Day, yet he wants a Judgment Day. See, the problem, of course, is when you say that there's no such thing as truth, what you're saying is not true. It breaks down as a truth claim in and of itself. And the Bible describes our relationship with God as a covenant relationship. He says all throughout the Old Testament, I will be your God. You will be my people. There'll be blessings and curses. You keep your promises, there'll be consequences. You break your promises, there'll be consequences. That's the narrative of the entire Old Testament. And since... We, as humans, are always breaking our promises. It begs the question, will God just give up? Well, what about his promises despite our unfaithfulness? In other words, what about his mercy? Or will God just say, "Ah, I give up, give in, do what you want. In other words, give up on his holiness. It's all throughout the Old Testament, this tension between I will never leave you or forsake you. If you break your promises, I will not forgive you. Which one is it? If he gives up, where's his love and mercy? If he gives in, where's, it, where's his justice? Is the covenant of God conditional or unconditional? When you read the Old Testament, in large chunks, you see this. That's why. Read the Bible in large chunks. It's awesome. Why? Because you start to see these themes. Because that becomes the big question. And that becomes the recognition that that's who we are. Because we tend to be people leaning towards grace or leaning towards law. Leaning towards mercy or leaning towards justice. Justice. People of grace say, yeah, we're sinners, but in the end, God will forgive. Or we say, yeah, God loves you, but you better obey. We learn one of those things in our homes growing up, and we tend to lean towards God's love as conditional or unconditional. You see the problem? You see, if there's no judgment day, what hope is there for the world? Miroslav Volf, the Yale Divinity School Croatian Christian scholar, writes about going home to Croatia 10, 15 years afterwards and seeing how his native people have been absolutely decimated by that civil war. If he took the Western gospel of grace only and God won't judge people ever and all roads lead to heaven, when your wife and daughters have been kidnapped and raped, when your husbands and sons have had their throats slit, quote, and you hear that there's no judgment day, ultimately, the population says, well, fine. If God won't take care of it, I will. If God won't make it right, I'll make it right. But if there is a judgment day, what hope is there for the world, for you and me? You see the problem? Well, here's the solution. Verses 1 through 3. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. You see, verses 1 through 3 are all in the past. Verses 4 through 9 are looking to the future. The reason we can look forward to judgment day is because the salvation of God has already been completed in the past. What does this mean? Psalm 98, if you notice. If you have a cross-reference Bible, you know, those people who got big, big, big Bibles, lots of cross-references, you know? I encourage you, when you bring your Bible here, just bring a Bible. Don't worry about the cross-references. You can always look at it. They're easier to carry, too, by the way, you know? But if you look at the cross-references, what you'll notice quickly is that Psalm 98 seems to reference Miriam's song of Exodus 15. You remember the story. The people have just crossed over the Red Sea. The Egyptian forces have been destroyed by the Lord in the Red Sea. And this is after the fact that they've had the Passover. God saved Israel out of Egypt through judgment. What he did was he sent the angel of death, killing the firstborn of every family. It was a terrible experience. And here's why Christianity differs than every other world view. See, these Egyptians worshipped ancient gods, false gods. And they had a chance to repent. Moses gave it to them, and and they wouldn't. And God says, I'm sending judgment down on Egypt, and by the way, you, my people, you're sinners too. And therefore... The only way you're going to survive is by sacrificing a spotless lamb and putting his blood upon the doorposts and the lintel of your doors. When the angel of death passes by, he will see that blood of the lamb and pass over you, and you'll be saved. That's a remarkable statement. You know that story. See, God doesn't exempt them from judgment, and every human being needs to be judged. Doesn't matter if you obey the Ten Commandments. Doesn't matter how much money you give to this church and other charitable organization. Doesn't matter how many people you share your faith with. The point is, you're not living up to your own moral standards, Roman 2. And neither are they. And every one of us deserves to be judged. And if God is a completely impartial judge and he sends his judgment in the world, everyone Must be judged. And so our only hope, then, is for the judgment to fall upon the Lamb. See, Psalm 98 not only sounds like Miriam's song, it also sounds like Luke 1, Mary's song, the Magnificat. For when Mary realized that she was going to bear the Savior of the world, she realized also that he was the resolution for the problem. That Jesus Christ solves the problem of judgment For us. How? Let me ask you. Is the blessing of God conditional based on perfect obedience? Or is the blessing of God unconditional and comes upon imperfect people? See, if you you read all the Old Testament, there was the two tensions, right? It's got to be one or the other. You got to take a liberal view or a conservative view. That's why we need to read the Bible in stereo, Old Testament, New Testament, by the way. Right? Large chunks. But what we tend to do is put ourselves in the place of God. John Stott said it's the essence of sin to put ourselves in the place of God, to be our own boss. To put ourselves on the throne like Prince John. But the essence of God is putting himself where we deserve to be, upon the cross in the place of judgment, on eternal death row. And on the cross, Jesus pronounces the sentence, and then he pays for it himself. See, law and mercy are equally satisfied on the cross, ladies and gentlemen, and therefore, the blessings of God are both conditional and unconditional. Conditional in that Jesus Christ satisfied the conditions on the cross for us, an unconditional, recognizing that he wants us to trust him by his work alone. And this is a praise prayer for the entire world. Don't miss that. That all the world will notice this. All the ends of the earth, verse 3, have seen the salvation of our God. We don't want moral absolutes, but we need moral absolutes. This is the answer. This is the judge and the king who did all this for you. How can this king and judge oppress you? He won't. He wants a love relationship with you and me. Here's the one king that you can trust. And yes, we tend to lead too much towards grace or too much towards law. Too much towards grace that it's cheap grace too much towards law that you become a modern-day Pharisee, angry. You know what happens to people who parent that way, right? You lean too much towards grace and you become one of those parents. You know, that's called negligence. You all know the parents that are too harsh and legalistic? They become abusive. The joyful reality, dear friends, is that Jesus Christ brings us to the center. Where the love of God is upon the cross, where love and justice come together, fulfilled for each and every one of us, and transforms our lives into a joyful choice to walk with Jesus Christ because of the cross. May our lives tell such a story and be happily ever after. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for the promise that you give to each and every one of us that there will be a joyful noise to all the earth with music, instruments, and all our creation. And Lord, You've taken the judgment upon yourself for us. May our lives be such a song, for you have done marvelous things for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. May this prayer for the world be realized in each and every one of us, in each and every one of our hearts this day, this week, this season, and forever, O Lord. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.